Section eight of Wings and the Child by E. Nesbit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eight. The Moral Code. In attempting to explain and enforce a moral code, the first and most essential need is to formulate definitely to oneself the code which one proposes to enforce and to explain. There is nothing from which children, and subject human beings generally, suffer so much as the incoherence of the thought of those in authority over them. Before you can begin to lay down the law, you must know what that law is, and your heart, soul, and spirit must not only know it, but approve it, before you can gain a willing obedience to it, from those on whom you wish to impose it. By this I do not mean only that we ought to make up our minds whether this, that, or the other isolated act is right or wrong, as it occurs, but that we ought to have a clear perception and knowledge of the things that are right and the things that are wrong, and have a standard which we can apply to any new action brought under our notice, so that, measuring the new act by our old standard, we shall be able to say, with some sort of rough accuracy, this is wrong, or this is right. And the standard of expediency is not a good one for this purpose, nor is the standard of custom, nor yet the standard of gentility or the standard of success in life. Children are not good judges of expediency. The law of mere custom will not be strong enough to bind them, when desire calls with enchanting voice to forbidden things. Gentility and the gospel of getting on will leave them cold. You may at first deal merely with a succession of unrelated particulars, saying, this is right, this is wrong, beating down the children's questionings by your mere ipse dixit, but a time will come when it will not be enough, in answer to their, why is it wrong, why is it right, to answer, because I say so. The child will want some other standard, which he himself can apply. The standard of what you say may be a shifting one, and anyhow, he cannot be at all sure what you will say, unless he knows what is your standard, the standard by which you will decide whether to say, in any given case, that a thing is wrong or right. And in order that you may clearly set before the child your own moral standard, you must first have set it very clearly before yourself. It is not enough to say, stealing is wrong, lying is wrong, greediness is wrong. If you feel that these things are wrong because they are contrary to the will of God, you will not find that that explanation is sufficient for a child, unless he knows very much more about God than his name, and certain miraculous and incomprehensible attributes of his. He will want to know what is the will of God, to which these wrong things are contrary. And he will want very much to know the definite right, as well as the definite wrong. You will have to give the child a standard, that can be applied to positives as well as negatives. There is a very simple standard by which to measure the actions of children, and, much more severely, our own actions. It is set up in the words of Christ, Do unto others as you would they should do unto you. A standard so simple that quite little children can understand and apply it, a standard so severe that were it understood and applied by us who are no longer children, the warped, tangled, rotten web we call civilization could not endure for a day. There is no other standard by which a child can judge its own actions, and yours, and judge them justly. 
Having fixed your standard, it will be necessary to try your own actions by it, as well as the child's. And this standard will give you the only vital code of morality, because it compels the continual exercise of imagination, the continual preening and flight of the wings of the soul. You cannot order your life by that divine precept, without a hundred times a day asking yourself, how should I like that, if I were not myself? without continually putting yourself, imaginatively, in someone else's place. And when the child asks, why is it wrong to steal, you can lead him to see how little he would like to have his own possessions stolen. When he asks, why is it wrong to lie, you may teach him to imagine his own bitterness if others should deceive him. It is, of course, much easier to say, it is wrong because I say so, or even, because God says so. But if you want to mark it right or wrong, to grave it deeply and ineffaceably on the tables of the heart and the soul, teach the child to see for himself how things are right and wrong, and to judge of them by that one divine and unfailing rule. Of course, even when the child knows what is right, he will not always do it, any more than you do, and one of the questions to be considered is how you shall deal with those lapses from moral rectitude, of which he, no less than you, will often be guilty. Punishments, the old savage punishments, were revenge, and nothing but revenge, a desire to pay out the offender, to take an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. More humane and reasonable legislators have sought to prove that punishment is curative, that the fear of punishment will deter people from doing wrong. A distinguished official of the Home Office gave it as his opinion only the other day, that punishment, no matter how severe, will not act as a deterrent, if there is ever so slight a chance of the criminal's escaping it. What would deter would be the certainty of punishment, however slight. Now, since you are not omniscient, you cannot pretend to your child that if he does wrong you are certain to know and to punish him. If you are silly enough to pretend it, he will find you out immediately, and estimate your lie at its true blackness. You can, however, without any pretence, assure him that if he does wrong he himself will know it, that it will make him feel unclean and nasty, and miserable till he is able to wash himself in the waters of repentance and forgiveness. That if he acts meanly and dirtily, he will feel dirty and mean, and if he acts bravely and cleanly, he will feel clean and brave and he will find that what you say is true. But not unless you shall have succeeded in convincing him that your standard is a true standard, and that the things which that standard shows to be wrong are wrong indeed. Here is the highest work of the imagination, to teach the child so to put himself in the place of the one he has wronged, that the knowledge of that wrong shall be its own punishment. No one desires, of course, that a child should always be feeling his own moral pulse. If he has learned that there is a right and a wrong way, he will not always be bothering about which way he may be living. It will be only when something goes amiss that he will stop and consider. Just as one does not stop to think whether one is breathing properly, only when one chokes one knows that one isn't. Punishment, however, should not be confused with the consequences of action and while children are yet too small to understand all that God may be to them, it is possible to show them the consequences of their misdeeds, magnifying these beyond the consequences of the act to be reprobated, 
and thus pointing the general moral. I mean that one may honourably apply, to the small wrongdoings of childhood, the sort of consequences, proportioned, of course, to the wrongdoing, which would result from such wrongdoing on a larger scale by a grown-up person. It will be exceedingly troublesome and painful for you, but perhaps its painfulness to you may be the measure of its value to the child. For instance, Tommy steals a penny, knowing that to steal pennies is wrong. He is very little, and a penny is very little, and your impulse, if not to slap him, might be to tell him that he is a very naughty boy, and have done with it. It will go to your heart to bring home to him the consequences of theft, especially as you cannot do it at once. But if, next time you are about to send him to the shop for something, you say, No, I can't send you, because you might steal my pennies as you did the other day. This will be hateful for you to do, but it will show him more plainly than anything else what happens to people who steal. They are not trusted. And the same with lies. Show him that those who tell lies are not believed. But, remembering how it felt to be a child, have pity, and do not teach him these lessons when anyone else is there. Let the humiliation of them be a secret between you two alone. Only when a wrong has been done which demands a restitution or an amend, should the soul of the child, shamed with wrong-doing, be exposed to alien eyes. When we sit in judgment on the aggressions and on the shortcomings of others, the first need is neither justice nor mercy, but imagination with self-knowledge. The judge should be able to put himself in the place of the accused, to perceive, by sympathetic vision, the point of view of the one who stands before the judgment-seat. The judge is an adult human being, and therefore has some knowledge of the mental and moral processes of human beings. He should use this knowledge, and when it comes to a grown-up judging a child, it is no less necessary for the judge to place himself imaginatively in the place of the small offender, and this cannot be done by imagination and self-consideration alone. Memory is needed. Let me say it again, there is only one way of understanding children. They cannot be understood by imagination, by observation, nor even by love. They can only be understood by memory. Only by remembering how you felt and thought, when you yourself were a child, can you arrive at any understanding of the thoughts and feelings of children. When you were a child, you suffered intensely from injustice, from want of understanding, in your grown-up senses. You were punished when you had not meant to do wrong. You escaped punishment when you had not meant to do right. The whole scheme of grown-up law seemed to you, and very likely was, arbitrary and incomprehensible. And you suffered from it desperately. So much that, even if you have now forgotten all that you suffered, the mark of that suffering nonetheless remains on your soul to this day. It would seem that the humiliations, the mortifications endured in childhood, leave an ineffaceable brand on the spirit. How then can we not remember, and remembering refrain from hurting other children as we were hurt? The spirit of the child is sensitive to the slightest change in the atmosphere about him. You can convey disapproval quite easily, and approval also. But while most parents and guardians are constantly alive to the necessity for expressing disapproval and inflicting punishment, 
the other side of the medal seems to be hidden from them. The most prevalent idea of training children is the idea of prohibition and punishment. You are not to do it. You will? Then take that. The blow or punishment following expresses simply and exactly the whole theory of moral education held by the mass of modern mothers. The vast mistake, both in the education of children and government of nations, is the heavy stress laid on the negative virtues. Also the fact that punishment follows on the failure not to do certain things, whereas no commensurate reward is offered even for success in not doing, let alone for success in active and honourable well-doing. The reward of negative virtue is negative also, and consists simply in non-punishment. The rewards of active virtue are, in the world of men, money and praise. But there are deeds for which money cannot pay, and sometimes these are rewarded by medals and paragraphs in the newspapers, not at all the same thing as being rewarded by the praise of your fellow men. Now children, like all sane human beings, love praise. They love it more keenly, perhaps, than other human beings because their natural craving for it has not been overlaid with false modesties and shames. They have not learned that praise to the face is open disgrace. On the contrary, praise to the face seems to them natural, right, and altogether desirable. See that they get it. Do you remember, when you were little, how you struggled to exercise some tiresome negative virtue, such as not biting your nails, not teasing the cat, not executing, with your school-boots, that heavy shuffling movement, so simply relieving to you, so mysteriously annoying to the grown-ups. Can you have forgotten how for ages and ages, three or four days even, you refrained from drinking water with your mouthful of food, from leaving your handkerchief about in obvious spots natural and convenient, how you sternly denied yourself the pleasure of drawing your hoop-stick along the front railings, because, although you enjoyed this musical exercise, others did not. And how, all through the interminable period of self-denial, you heartened yourself to these dismal refrainings, by the warm, comfortable thought, won't they be pleased? And how they never were. They took it all as a matter of course. To them, because they had forgotten how it felt to be a child, all your heroic sacrifices and renunciations counted as nothing. To them it was natural that a child should keep his fingers out of his mouth, and off the tail of puss, should keep his feet still and his handkerchief in his pocket, should do the suitable things with meat, drink, and hoop-sticks. They never noticed, and so they never praised. But, when worn out by long abstinence from natural joys, natural relaxations, you broke one of those rules which seemed to you so useless and so arbitrary, then they noticed fast enough. "'Can you never remember?' they said. "'Just a simple thing like not biting your nails?' Bitter aloes following, no doubt. Or, "'I really should have thought,' they would say, "'that considering the number of times I've spoken to you about it, "'you would remember not to make that frightful noise. "'With boots or hoop-sticks or a blade of wet grass or what not. "'They did not pause to think, "'in their earnest grown-up business of bringing the boy up, how many, how very many, and how seemingly silly, were the don'ts which you had to remember. But you will not be like that. You will notice and approve. 
and most needful of all, reward with praise the earnest, difficult refrainings of the child who is trying to please you, who is trying to learn the long table of your commandments, all beginning with, Thou shalt not, and to practise them, not because those commandments appeal to him as reasonable or just or useful, but just because he loves you, wants to please you, and, deepest need of love, wants you to be pleased with him. A hasty yet determined effort at putting yourself in his place is the thing needed every time you have to sit in judgment on the actions of another human being, most of all when that human being is a little child. If we cultivated this habit, we should not hurt other people as we do. I have seen cruel things. A little girl, suffering from a slight affection of the eye, was given by a sympathetic aunt the run of a box of that aunt's old ball-dresses. She spent a whole hour in arranging a costume which seemed to her to be of royal beauty. A crushed pink tulle dress, a many-coloured striped Roman sash, white satin slippers, put on over the black-strapped shoes and turning up very much at the toes. White gloves, very dirty and wrinkled like a tortoise's legs, over the plump dimpled arms. Hair dressed high on the head over a pad of folded stockings, secured by hairpins borrowed from the housemaid. A wreath of crushed red calico roses from somebody's last summer's hat, some pearl beads, the property of Cook, and a blue heart out of a cracker, saved since Christmas. "'I am a beautiful princess,' said the child and the housemaid responded heartily, "'That you are, Ducky, and no mistake. Go and show Mother.' But Mother, when she was told that this stumbling, long-tailed bundle of crushed finery was a beautiful princess, laughed and said, "'Princess Ragbag, I should say.' "'It's only pretending, you know,' the child explained, wondering why explanation should be needed by Mother and not by Eliza. The mother laughed again. I shouldn't pretend to be a princess with that great sty in my eye," she said, and thought no more about it. But the child remembers to this day how she slunk away and tore off the beautiful princess clothes, and cried and cried and cried, and wished that she was dead. Children really do wish that sometimes. Another form of cruelty is mere carelessness. A child spends hours in preparing some surprise for you, decorates your room with flowers—not in the best taste, perhaps, and fading, maybe, before your impatiently awaited arrival, or ties scarves and handkerchiefs to the banisters to represent flags at your homecoming. "'Very pretty, dear,' you say carelessly, hardly looking, and the child sees that you hardly look. "'And now clear it all away, there's a dear.' The child clears it all away, and with the dying flowers something else is cleared away, something that will no more live again than will the faded flowers. Be generous of praise. It is the dew that waters the budding flowers of kindness and love and unselfishness. It is to all that is best in the child the true elixir of life. End of section 8